chapter 21. Now, if you've looked at your bulletin at all this week, you know we have a lot of text in the sermon this morning. In fact, Tiffany texted me earlier this week and she said, if we don't put the slide in, I can almost do it with a nine-point font. I said, well, do away with the slide. That ought to be perfect. And I'm looking at this going, oh, man, that is a lot of text. And it's very repetitive. If, you, if you've read this before, if you've ever noticed this about 1 Kings 21, verses 1 through 20, there's a lot of repetition within this text. And the reason is there is a point that is being driven home. Now, normally, whenever we go through the sermon this on, on Sunday mornings, I read the text to you and then I uh, exposit it as we go. But this morning, because there's so much text to save some time, I'm going to just kind of jump right into everything uh, just to save some time. So keep your Bible open. There's a cool trick you can do with your, with your bulletin. I don't know if you know this. Uh, you can actually fold it like this so the text is right here and your notes are right here. And you can circle things and connect the dots. I don't, I'm the only nerd who does that. Okay. Anyway, something you can do. But... Uh, This morning, the sermon title is How to Ruin the People of God in Five Easy Steps. Well, that sounds real positive, Pastor. Thanks. This is what I wanted to know, right? No. Here's the thing. It's... Last week I said that if the church was to be ruined, it would come about because of apathetic laziness, that the church would cease to move. It's hard to really ruin the church. But we can ruin church for others. We can ruin church for ourselves. And we can ruin other people in that process if we if we try to push back against God's design for how He has leadership and servanthood and all those things for His design for the church. In fact, this morning, if you are taking notes, if you have your bulletin open and you want to write this down, to ruin the people of God, we must simply resist God's formula for leadership and servanthood. That's the thing I want you to take away from this message today, if nothing else. To ruin the people of God, all we have to do is fight against God's design for his people. Fight against God's design for how the church is meant to operate. Fight against God's design for the home, for the marriage, for the workplace. All those things tie together. And so if we want to see how to really just blow it all up, well, we get no better example in Scripture than in two people named Ahab and Jezebel. And so I'm going to tell you today how to undermine all the good that we've seen happen here at Faith for the past three years. If you want to blow it up, blow it to smithereens, hit the detonator, whatever the case may be, here you go. This is how you do it. All the good teaching, all the progress, all the growth we've seen, how to negate every good altar call. If we want to be that church that continues to take three steps forward, only to take two and a half steps back, this is how you do it. By being an Ahab or a Jezebel. Now, many times we have to be very careful when we read scripture because sometimes when we read, we so badly want to be the hero. We want to read ourselves into the role of David or Samson or Gideon or in some cases even Jesus. But those people are there for us to learn from. And and by the way, you're not Jesus, right? I don't know who needs to hear that this morning. Maybe someone watching online. You're not. He is. And like I said, there, there are many things that can, or there's, there's not many things, sorry, that can destroy the church, but there are a lot of things that can ruin the church for others. 
What could destroy the people of God? Well, not persecution. We've seen that for 2,000 years, right? Fox's Book of Martyrs is full of Christians who were persecuted and yet revival broke out when they were martyred. Not conflict. We've seen churches have conflict and resolve it and be, be fine. Jesus said not even the gates of hell should prevail against his church. So what can destroy Christians? Oftentimes it's those who claim to represent Christ, who choose to be that Ahab or that Jezebel character, who, as Jude tells us, sneaks in unaware. They look like us, but they are not of us. They're not one of us. And sometimes they may not even be aware of that which they're doing. And that's why we have messages like this. We sometimes will hear of somebody who does some of these things and we'll say, well, he just has a real problem with authority. We need to just pray for him. Or sometimes they're, and I've heard this several times over the past few years. Well, you know, that lady, she's got a Jezebel spirit about her. And we don't want to put the responsibility on her. We want to put it on some demonic power behind her. No, that's not always the case. In fact, Scripture is very clear here in 1 Kings 21. There's not a demonic power behind Ahab and Jezebel. In this instance, at least, their own selfish desire is what destroys or ruins the people of God. And the simplest way to ruin the people of God is to resist God's design for leadership and servanthood. Now, step one, okay, first thing, right out of the gate, throw a fit. How many of you have ever done that? It's a sign of maturity. And in some cases, it's a sign of spiritual maturity. We've all done it. We've all been guilty of this. Read in verses one through three. Now it happened after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard which was in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab the king of Samaria. And Ahab spoke to Naboth saying, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is close beside my house and I will give you a better vineyard than it in its place. If it is good in your sight, I will give you the price of it in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, Yahweh forbid me that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Naboth is a Jezreelite, or Naboth, some people pronounce it that way, but Naboth is a Jezreelite. And from what we can tell from this, we don't, we don't know much more about him throughout Scripture, but what we can tell is he is a righteous man. He fears God. He does not want to upset the way God has ordered things. He knows the law. He knows the design God has for his people. But he made one huge mistake. He happened to be one of those people who just looked after his own affairs and his own business and happened to live next to the king's winter home. They actually discovered and excavated this palace, and it was a castle, by the way. In the early 1990s, they discovered it. It had towers. It even had a moat around it. I mean, this, for the era that it was in, was very ahead of its time. It would look somewhat like a castle from the Middle Ages. And the, the moat, of course, didn't have water in it like you see in cartoons. This would have been in Palestine, so it would have been a dry moat to keep people from tunneling under the walls. But starting with Ahab, we know the Israelite kings would go to Jezreel. That was uh, about 25 miles north of Samaria, which was the capital of Israel during this time period. And they'd go there and they'd spend their winter months. How many of you say amen? Right? 
Yeah, who doesn't want to vacation for winter? Gary, right? <laughs> there we go. I was waiting. I was waiting for it. You know, who doesn't want a vacation for winter? There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with Ahab wanting to do that. But he goes to his winter home and he sees this very nice vineyard next door. And he thinks to himself, hey, this is pretty convenient. I like that place. That would make for me a really nice little vegetable garden. So he goes to to Naboth and he offers to buy his property. He offers to give him better property somewhere else if he just... If he just will give him that little strip of land. And on the outside looking in, we see this. And you might be going, what's he doing wrong? Nothing. Right? He's trying to be fair. Except he's not. Let me tell you why. Ahab is approaching this whole thing from a Canaanite pagan mentality. In Canaanite culture, land was just a commodity. It was something you bought, you sold, you traded. It didn't matter because it's just dirt to them. It was their land, they owned it, but it was just another thing to buy or sell and and use to advance yourself. You don't do that if you worship the God of Israel. Not in this era. We know Ahab did not worship the God of Israel. In fact, if you go a few pages back in your Bible to chapter 16, you'll read beginning in verse 30, Ahab, the son of Omri, did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh more than all who were before him. Now, some people have taken that and said he did more evil than all the people before him combined. We don't just, we don't really see that in scripture, but just keep that in mind. He did some evil stuff. Now, it happened as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, the king of the, of the Sidonians, as a wife, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. That's the god of Ahab, Baal. In fact, he goes and he builds a house for Baal. He builds an altar to this false god Baal. And then verse 33 in chapter 16, Ahab also made the Asherah. This was a fertility goddess that was often placed next to altars to Baal. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. People want to blame Jezebel for all of Ahab's problems. But there's some truth to that. But More than anything, it's on Ahab. Ahab is just as guilty. Marrying Jezebel was just one of the many rebellious things he does in his life. And he's going to pay for it. But to be clear, Ahab is not a righteous king. And throughout the message today, we're going to compare him to Christ. We're going to compare him to the king of kings as we go. But if anyone ever tries, if you're you're after the service, and you guys are at Pizza Ranch, and and someone says, you know... Pastor was pretty hard on Ahab today. Red flag. Watch that person pretty close. Uh, you know, Jezebel wasn't that bad. Uh, red flag. Whoa. Because <laughs> either they're speaking from ignorance and they have no idea how vile and wicked these people were, or they're an Ahab and Jezebel themselves. We have to be cautious of that. If the Bible says they're bad, they're bad. I'm not being hard on them. The writers of scripture are hard on them. 
They're wicked people, Ahab and Jezebel. And the fact that Ahab gets it in his mind to make this offer to Naboth, that tells us where his priorities are. It tells you where his heart is. It shows us that Ahab has a habit of thumbing his nose at the God of Israel. Look at Naboth's words when he replies to Ahab. He says, Yahweh forbid me that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. You see, in Israelite culture, the property wasn't just part of the families. It was God's property. They were charged as stewards of the property. They were to look after it. It didn't go to whoever had the most gold or whoever had the most power. It stayed within the tribal lines. Naboth's response strongly implies to us as the readers that selling this property, giving up this land, is not just going to displease everybody around him, but it's going to make God angry. It's going to disregard his law. Now this vineyard was Naboth's ancestral land and it was to stay in his family as this inheritance so they would be stewards of it. We see this in the Levitical law back in Leviticus 25. God himself says, the land moreover shall be sold, uh, sorry, moreover shall not be sold permanently for the land is mine. It's his. It doesn't belong to Naboth. It's not his to sell. For you are but sojourners and foreigner residents with me. That's what God says. Now, if someone needed to sell their land, God put provisions in there. Maybe they fell on hard times. Maybe they were irresponsible with their finances. It doesn't matter. It says, if a brother of yours becomes so poor, he has to sell part of his possession of land, then his nearest kinsman redeemer is to come and redeem what his brother has sold. That's how the property rights work. It's to stay within the family. It's to go to an uncle, a cousin, a brother, or a son. In the reverse order I just gave. It's to stay within. People weren't just to purchase it. It didn't go just to those who could afford it. But if a guy couldn't find someone to buy that property, this is what God says. If he has not found sufficient means to return it to himself, because see, after a while, they would buy it back from their relative. And if he couldn't do that, then what he has sold shall remain in the hands of its purchaser until the year of Jubilee. Which means, at that point, it goes back to the person who was charged with it initially. But at at the Jubilee, it shall revert that he may return to his possession of land. So Ahab's wrong here. Ahab is completely off the rails over property, over a strip for a vegetable garden. Even approaching Naboth and asking for this, making this offer. Now keep in mind, Naboth is a descendant of Jeroboam, an Ephraimite. Naboth is a Jezreelite. He's of the tribe of Issachar. So it's not like their close family where Naboth has a right to this property at all. And the law is very clear of this too. In Numbers 36, verse 7, it says, No inheritance of the sons of Israel shall be transferred from tribe to tribe. He has no claim on this at all. But he wants it so badly, he completely disregards God's order. He completely disregards God's designs. And this is what he does. Verse 4. 
So Ahab came into his house sullen and enraged because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and ate no food. Church, what a baby. What a temper tantrum of a small child. He goes into his house sullen. The Hebrew word is sar. And it means he's so mad. You guys, he's so mad. Don't you feel sorry for Ahab? No. What? He's so upset. And he's enraged. And if we understood this Hebrew word zayef, it means, it means he is in a furious rage. I imagine he didn't just go in his bed and pull the covers over and lay there. He kicked, he stomped, he did that thing kids do where they throw themselves down and, right? You've all seen it. If you've got kids, you know the anger I'm talking about. We call it in our house, we call it hissy fits. Not only that, he's pouting. He's thrown himself on the bed. He won't look at anyone. He's refusing even to eat his dinner. That'll show him. He's acting like a child. Now, King Hezekiah, years later, when he is on the verge of death, he's so ill. In fact, Isaiah comes to him and says, you need to get your house in order. You're going to die. This is how Hezekiah acts. He, he turned his face to the wall and prayed to Yahweh, his God. This is how a king acts when he's going to die. And by the way, Hezekiah, great king. Ahab, not so great king. He thinks he's going to die. Why? Because somebody told me no. I didn't get my way. That's the message he's sending here. And church, if we're honest, in our spiritual immaturity, many times we do this too. When we don't get our way, when things don't go like we want, we get upset. Now maybe we don't throw a fit in the way that we embarrass ourselves or embarrass others. But when we don't get what we want, the way we want, when we want, how we want, when our pride says we have to have it that way and we don't get it, we throw a fit. We get upset. And when we do it in the church, it damages the people of God. It makes a ripple effect that goes out and turns people off. It bothers them. Kids call it these days, you've probably seen this, they call it being a Karen. Anybody heard that? My daughter's nodding her head. Yeah. It's the type of woman who walks into McDonald's and you're sitting there trying to order your food and she comes in and slams down her tray. I asked for no ketchup on my hamburger. Let me speak to the manager. Right? That's being a Karen, right? Right, Evie? I got it right? Okay. In church, among the people of God, it's not, it goes way beyond being a Karen. It's being a Jezebel. It's being an Ahab. So we have to pause at this time. We have to ask, what does or how does this compare to Christ? Jesus, who is actually wrong. Jesus, who is actually betrayed. Jesus, who is actually struck in the face by those who oppressed him and by those who opposed him. How did he handle this? When he knew that his will wasn't going to happen, he says to the Father, If it is possible that this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. When Jesus doesn't get his way, if we want to read it that way and understand it that way, we understand his way. It was always secondary. The Father's way was perfect. 
Ahab knew about God's law. Ahab knew about God's property, but Ahab didn't care for God's will concerning property. Christ does. Christ does care about the will of the Father. That's what he submits to. That's what he is led by. When we're in prayer and we're saying, like Christ, not my will be done, but your will be done, Lord, it becomes a lot easier when we don't have our will, when we don't get our way to say, okay, Lord, I trust you. I just trust you and let it go. But if we want to destroy God's people, we just have to try to undermine God's will and throw our hissy fit when it doesn't work out. Step two, let someone else lead you. Let someone who has no claim to leadership, no right to leadership, let them lead the pack. Verse five and six. Uh, But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, how is it that your spirit is so sullen that you are not eating food? So he said to her, because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, give me your vineyard for money or else if it pleases you, I'll give you a vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Here we go. Church, if you were here for Bible trivia earlier this year, you know this phrase, weak men produce evil women. That's not a sexist statement. That is a biblical fact. When men do not rise up and be the men of God that God has called them to be, women rule and children rule, and that is a judgment of the men who are not stepping up to be the men of God they are called to be. We Nowhere, nowhere else in Scripture do we get a better example of this than in Ahab and Jezebel. Jezebel gets all this hate, but if Ahab would have been a man of God like he would have been, he wouldn't have married Jezebel to begin with. And he would have led her as a man is called to lead his wife. Instead, he lets her take over. He lets her lead because he's too weak. He's too full of his own self-pity, his own rage. You see, Ahab did not want a wife. When we really examine him and their relationship, Ahab didn't want a wife. He didn't want a partner. He wanted a nanny. He wanted a nursemaid. He wants his mommy. And this is a disgusting fact of American society too. We see it all the time. So many men want to continue being boys so they force their wives to act like moms. It's disgusting. It's Ahab and it's Jezebel and judgment is coming. She comes in and she says, why are you so sad? Why aren't you eating? The subtle question is, why aren't you acting like a man? Why aren't you acting like a king? And what's Ahab's response? I didn't get my way. I didn't get what I wanted. In fact, what he really says is, I talked to Naboth and I made a fair bargain and he said, no, I don't care. I'm not going to give you my vineyard. It's the fact that I got told no. I imagine Ahab was not used to many people telling him no in his life. So he threw a fit. Ahab's the victim, right? That's who we should really feel sorry for. That's what he wants us to do. He's the victim here. He got told what he didn't want to hear. He's been assaulted. He's been attacked because he didn't get his way. And Jezebel, of all the people in the kingdom, just happens to be this man's wife. She's the perfect person to step in and bring about the destruction that really he has to have happen for him to get his way. Because Jezebel, she doesn't fear anybody. She's not afraid of men. 
She loves to dominate men. In fact, if you read back in 1 Kings 18, it happened that when Jezebel was cutting down the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and sustained them with bread and water. Prophets, plural, mighty men of God, and not just a bunch of generic prophets whose names we never hear of. Get this, 1 Kings 19, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done at the at the Mount Carmel, what he, how he'd killed the prophets of Baal. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as, life as the life of one of them by about this time tomorrow. These are prophets. Elijah, she just got told. Elijah called fire down from heaven. And what's Jezebel say? Oh, you done went too far. Really? You're going to go after this guy? He literally went nuclear on your prophets. And you're going to threaten him? Absolutely. Jezebel doesn't fear the king. Why would she fear a prophet? She has no qualms about this. You see, Ahab, historically, he's seen as a warrior. In fact, under Ahab, Israel does okay. He's not a bad king, per se. He's just a bad man. He's he's seen as a warrior king. He wins battles, but his wife is a barbarian. His wife is cruel. She's ruthless. And we're going to see soon that she's the one Ahab would rather run the show. Verse 7 reads, And Jezebel his wife said to him, Do you now exercise kingship over Israel? Arise, eat bread, and let your heart be merry. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. Hmm. Notice the first thing she says. Aren't you the king? This has a lot of layers to it. So the first thing we might read is, well, she's just reminding him that he's in leadership. And that might be true. She might be saying, hey, you're a big boy. You're the king. But you know what? I'll take care of this for you. In other words, hey, you wear the crown, but let me rule. You might be the figurehead, but I'll take over the show. Actually, what she's saying to him is even deeper than that. Like I said, there are layers. It's very emasculating. Aren't you supposed to be the guy in charge? Aren't you supposed to be the man? Well, sit up, little boy, eat your snack, and be happy. Play with your toys. I'm going to do what needs to get done. That's, if you read it, that's really what she's getting at. And you know the sad thing? Ahab's totally okay with it. He just sits back and says, go right ahead. In fact, he's going to help her, but we'll get to that in a minute. Weak men produce evil women. Some scholars believe there's even a deeper layer to this. And this is where we should pay attention very much. The Jezebel saying something so wicked here, something satanic. That she's saying to him and exposing her true evil What she might be asking here is, aren't you the supreme power in Israel? Aren't you even greater than the God these people serve? The enemy's tricks have never changed. He'll either make you question God's word or he will try to lower God, which Jezebel has done by killing his prophets and elevate man. And that's exactly what she's doing in this moment. She's trying to say, aren't you above the law? 
Doesn't all the property, all the land, doesn't it already belong to you? And the answer is no. Even in Israel, the king was not above the law. In fact, if you read in Deuteronomy 17, 18, and 20, it's very clear the king was supposed to take the first five books of what we call our Bible, the Torah or the Pentateuch, depending on who you talk to, and he was to write down and copy it all by hand himself. And he was to write it all out, and he was to write this on a scroll, wind it up, keep it on him at all times, because every day he was going to sit through. You think it's like Bible study takes a long time on Wednesdays? The, the king was supposed to go through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, every day. Read all of them. In his own handwriting. He was to know the law. He was to know the word. But Ahab obviously doesn't do this. Or if he does, it's just for a show. Because that would mean being the king that God has called him to be. That would mean being a man that God had made him to be. That would mean being the husband that God has designed him to be. So Jezebel rises up. She says, don't worry about it. I'll get you the vineyard. I'll get you what you want. You have to wonder if in that moment, a few hundred yards away, Naboth is sitting at his dinner table and just does this. He just gets chills. Remember, he's done nothing wrong. Naboth is truly innocent in this. He's trying to do what, what God's will was, what God's design was. He tried to till the land God had given him, to be a good steward of what God had given him. Tried to honor the Lord's will. Jezebel says, that will not stand as long as I'm queen. My man gets what he wants. We deserve it. After all, we're royalty. So how does Christ compare to this? We never see Jesus take what doesn't belong to him. But we do see Jesus tempted with it. Matthew 4, 8 through 10, the devil takes him to a very high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he says to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Now when you understand that, what he's saying to Jesus in that moment is, you can bypass the cross. You don't have to hang out with those smelly disciples and, and get annoyed with them, having to teach them over and over and over the same things. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to do anything you don't want to do. I'll give you all these kingdoms, but you've got to be led by me. Who does Ahab let lead him? Jezebel. In this moment, Jesus is given a choice. He's tempted to let the devil himself lead. And so Jesus' response is, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. You see, Jesus knew God's law. Jesus knew God's will. And only, that's the only time, the only time he allows himself to be led by somebody else or taken under the leadership of men is when, is he, when he is in submission to the will of the Father, when it's under the Father's direction at the time of his arrest, trial, crucifixion, and death. It's the only time Jesus is ever led by someone else. And even then, it's under the Father's direction. You see, Jesus is the king who keeps the law. Jesus is the king who does not let others lead him. Jesus is the one who exemplifies for us what true manhood looks like. Jesus had all the power in the universe at his fingertips, but he chooses submission to his father. Jesus had the ability to vaporize those who opposed him with just a glance, and yet he knew the law of God, and he knew the word of God, and he knew the will of God, and he knew what mattered most. If he was to lead his church, 
If he was to be in direct submission to the will of the Father, he had to be strong enough to submit to the Father's will. Jesus could have easily said, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to call angels to, to rescue me. I wanted to be out hanging out with my friends. He could have easily thrown a fit. He could have said, hey, 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 devil, is that offer still good? But no, he had the ultimate man-up moment. And even though he could have, like I said, could have called angels to rescue him from the cross, he didn't. But if we want to ruin the people of God, we just have to undermine God's formula for leadership and let someone else lead who shouldn't. Step three, undermine the word of God. Verse eight. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal and sent letters to the elders and to the nobles who were living with Naboth and his city. Jezebel implicates Ahab here. Now Ahab knows what's going on. We are to assume that by this reading. Because she takes his seal. Now that would have likely been a ring or a a larger stamp-like thing that he would have carried on himself. That is a symbol of his authority. And so she sends these letters as if they're from Ahab himself. Now when she seals them, if you've ever seen a movie or a show that does this, they they roll it up and then they stamp it with hot wax and they put that seal in there. And if that wax is broken, when it gets to its intended recipient, somebody's in deep trouble. They'll be put to death for treason or something like that. You think it's a big deal that they say it's a federal offense for tampering with someone else's mail? Yeah, they would kill you for it. It's a letter from the king. And it's confidential. They do not want, Jezebel does not want anyone to know what she's up to. Everything inside is between her or Ahab, I use quotation fingers, because they need to believe that it's under the direction of the king. These were the, she's sending them out to the the nobles and the elders. These are the men who had power. These are the men of influence. And she, she sends them because when they see that seal, they're going to assume that the king is ordering them something. And by proxy, they're within the will of God because they're within the will of the king. To refuse these orders would be the same as treason. They're pushing back. They're doing what Naboth did. And clearly you see that's not safe if you've read the letter. And even though Ahab isn't directly involved, well, that's true. He never condemns Jezebel for what she's done. And he never condemns these men either. Yet he's going to be the one held responsible for what happens going forward. Jezebel knows, by the way, she knows she is undermining the will of God. She is manipulating his people as she does this. Jezebel has complete, complete disregard for God's orders for God's word. Ahab was the the chosen leader. She's going to manipulate that. Now for the record, she's not Eleanor Roosevelt taking care of things while FDR is laying in bed with polio. Okay. She's doing evil things. She's not looking after just Ahab. She's looking after herself here too. For Ahab, this is a loophole in the system. You see, the king can't be caught doing these honorable things. And at the end of the day, if he gets caught, if a prophet confronts him, she's an easy scapegoat. But he's going to get what he wants anyway. Now, people might say that Ahab had no, clue, no idea, no clue, but the text is very clear he does. He, gets, he gives her, her his seal. So make no mistake about this. Ahab is okay with undermining God's word. 
And here's how we know that she knows God's word enough to undermine it. Verses 9 and 10. She wrote in the letter saying, Call for a fast and seat Naboth at the head of the people and seat two vile men. Not just one. Two bad guys. Seat them before him and let them testify against him saying, You cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him so that he will die. Notice the first thing she does is call for a fast. We want you to look holy while you're doing this. We want you to look like you're in the right. To do this, to call a solemn fast, that would mean that they understand disaster is on the way, that bad things are coming because God is bringing judgment upon his people because there's sin in Israel. And in this case, the sin is going to be blamed on Naboth. There's this disaster heading their way, and the only way to avert this travesty is for the people to humble themselves before the Lord, remove this sin that's bringing the judgment. And we see this play out in other places in Scripture too. Some of you might think of Joshua 6, the Valley of Ai, when uh, there's, there's sin in the camp, and it's hidden, the sin of Achan. But also in Judges 20, then all the sons of Israel and all the people went up and came to Bethel and wept. Thus they remained there before Yahweh and fasted that day until evening and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before Yahweh. They're trying to avert the disaster. First Samuel 7, Samuel said, gather all Israel to Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. And they gathered to Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against Yahweh. And Samuel judged the sons of Israel at Mizpah. This is done in a way to show, hey, we're humbling ourselves, God. We know there's sin and we're repentant and we're sorry. So Jezebel knows this. She knows her history. She knows her scripture. She knows just enough to be dangerous, literally. Dangerous to the people of God. She knows enough to undermine his word. Notice also that she knows how many men it's going to take to condemn this man to death. She says, see, two vile men before him. Some translators call them worthless men. It's the Hebrew word, blah-yi-a-l, and that is exactly how you pronounce it. Don't question it, okay? It's a joke. I'm not going to try it again. I said that right the first time, believe it or not, but... It means useless. It means wicked. It means decayed character. These are the type of people that Jezebel relies on to carry out her evil plans. What does that say about Jezebel? What's the old saying? Birds of a feather flock together, right? That's what she's doing here. She needs these two worthless, decayed of character people to pull this off because the law demands for a man to be put to death. It has to come by the word of two or more witnesses. Numbers 3530, if anyone strikes down a person, the murderer shall be put to death at the mouth of witnesses, but no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Deuteronomy 17.6, on the mouth of two witnesses or three, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the mouth of one witness. So may Make no mistake about this. Jezebel knows she is manipulating, undermining, and abusing the word of God here. She goes so far as to accuse Naboth of blasphemy. Church, how many of you know that's ironic? That is the deepest irony. That Jezebel, who is the queen of blasphemers, 
She, her name is synonymous to this day with blasphemy. All the way into the New Testament in Revelation 2, her name is tied to blasphemy. To the church of Thyatira, Jesus says, I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and deceives my servants so that they commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idol, idols. By the way, their sin wasn't that they were teaching the same thing. Their sin wasn't that they were following her. It was that they tolerated her. They permitted the blasphemy to carry on. If you think those who tolerate a Jezebel or an Ahab are guiltless, you're wrong. Paul says in Galatians, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows, this he will reap. Do not tolerate this behavior in the church. We do not twist scripture to our whims. We follow the leading of scripture. That's what the Holy Spirit inspired long before he spoke to anybody else today. Uh, this past Wednesday, I mentioned Pastor Calvin gave a, a good message. What you don't know about this was during the class, we, we took an outline and we broke it down. And Pastor Calvin said, man, I really, I, I read this thing in the commentary and it's so good. And I want my whole sermon to be about that. I said, no, you, we don't do that. But it's in a commentary. I, is it in scripture? Well, yeah, then use that scripture. Make that point. Drive that home. And he stops for a second. After, after about 30 minutes of this back and forth with me, he stops, he goes, I'm leading the scripture. Scripture's not leading me. Light bulb, right? Yeah. But church, we always do this. Many of us do. I, I'm guilty of trying to do this, even in sermon preparation. Many times I have to stop. Wait a second. Is this what the Lord is saying? Is this what scripture says? Or is this what I want it to mean? Because to do otherwise is to manipulate the word. To do a Jezebel or an Ahab. So we have to ask, well, how does Christ compare to this? Often when confronted with the law by the Pharisees, Jesus would point to the things they were talking about and make it very clear, what you're talking about isn't even the law. It's your own traditions. It's your own things. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus is confronted about the Sabbath. And he refers to David eating sanctified bread in the temple. And he explains... To the people who should know this, he tells them, the man was not made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for the man, for man to rest. You see, Jesus knew the word of God and he uses it for good because the word of God is good. It's not a tool to be weaponized against someone else. That's what an Ahab does. That's what a Jezebel does. Jezebel knew the word of God and uses it for selfish gain. Her words were to be read as higher than what God's word had said. Notice any of these men could have stopped and said, this doesn't seem right. This, isn't, this feels off to me. I, they lived with Naboth. They knew he was a righteous man. Something seems off here. But that's where we go into step four. If we want to undermine God's word, if we want to ruin the people of God, the best way to do that is step four, gossip. Verse 11 reads, So the men of, this, of his city, Naboth's city, the people who knew him, the elders and the nobles who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them, just as it was written in the letters which she had sent them. These men of this city are guilty. There's no way around that. We cannot make an excuse for them. Now, upon first glance, we might just say, well, they were just following orders. 
By the way, that's what the Nazis said. Didn't work out for them either. If nothing else, they are guilty of humoring gossip because that's exactly what they're doing. And they will be just as guilty for Naboth's murder. These men would have read this letter and if they were truly honorable, they would have tried to find a prophet, which would have been hard because Jezebel's killed most of them, right? Or at least find a priest or someone who could confirm the truth of these allegations. But they had to have read that pesky little part about finding those bad witnesses, those two vile men, and they would know these allegations are false. That's why they had to have those men to carry it out. We could give them the benefit of the doubt and say, well, maybe they thought the king had heard from a prophet and this is something we should do. But this king is known for not believing in God and his prophets. So what kind of person would be whispering this in the king's ear? Now, there's a lot of misinformation in the world these days. We call it fake news, thanks to a previous president, right? We know there's a lot of that that goes around. But there is no more misinformation about something than about gossip itself, which is really ironic if you think about that. What is gossip? How do we break that down? Someone once said, well, you're not supposed to gossip. It's in the Ten Commandments. Well, what's that commandment actually say? It says, Exodus 20, verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. It doesn't say gossip. But we understand it to mean that. Proverbs actually warns quite a bit about gossip. Proverbs 16, 28, a perverse man spreads strife and a gossip or whisperer separates close companions. Proverbs 20, verse 19, he who goes about as a slanderer reveals secrets, therefore do not associate with one of loose lips or a gossip. These passages refer to what we call gossip and truly it's slander. It's deceitful speech intended to harm a person's character. Now, if you walk by my house, and I'm in my front yard with my dog. My dog's name is Zeke, by the way. And if you see me throw a ball for Zeke, and he grabs that ball, and we haven't quite figured out the game of fetch yet, no matter how hard we try, Zeke always likes to bring it about halfway back and stare at me like, I dare you to come get it. And you might walk by my house one day and see me throw a little orange ball and Zeke do this and then run over to the side and do his business in the yard and never bring me that ball. And you might hear me say something like, oh, you goofball, bring me that ball. And he never does. Zeke, you dummy, bring me that ball. And he doesn't do it. All right, fine, I'll go get my ball. I'll go get it. I'll throw it again because I'm a sucker for that game. Now, if you walk by and you go and, and you tell somebody, you know, I saw a pastor the other day playing in his yard with, with his dog, and man, Zeke, Zeke is kind of dumb. That is not gossip. We've established that as fact. He does not know how to play fetch. He's kind of a dummy. Zeke's a smart dog, but this is one thing, mm, just not getting it. Okay? That's not gossip. You saw something, you're repeating the story, it's kind of funny, that's okay. But if you walk away and you go to somebody, say you go down to the market and while you're getting a cup of coffee, you say, I saw a pastor of that faith assembly of God and he was throwing that ball at his dog and the dog would bring it to him and he'd kick him and say, man, you're such a stupid dog. That's gossip. That's slander. That's twisting the truth 
to elevate or put someone elevate yourself or put someone down. That's what Jezebel is doing in this scenario to Naboth. She is putting him down and making herself and her husband seem like they are more righteous. They called for a fast, this is verse 12 and 13. They called for a fast and seated Naboth at the head of the table. Then these two vile men came in and sat before him, and the vile men testified against him, against Naboth, before the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him with stones until he died. These men are under the king's orders, under Jezebel's orders, under the king's seal. These men call for a solemn fast. They are pretending to be holy. They are pretending to be about a holy purpose. So they can not only assassinate Naboth, but assassinate his character as well. They stone him under the presumption that he is the reason disaster is about to come upon Israel. And in doing so, they make themselves appear righteous. They make themselves appear higher or better than they are. Even though they, are the, they, they look like they're the ones who are eradicating sin from the nation. When instead, they are bringing sin into the nation. This is what gossip does. We gossip and we slander because we want to be seen as greater. Because we want that other person to be seen as less than they are. And it does not necessarily murder a person, but it can definitely murder their reputation or their character. It is poison to the people of God. It is poison in the church. It's a poison to the body of Christ. So we ask ourselves, we stop, we say, well, then how does Christ deal with this? Oddly enough, we never really see Jesus preach a sermon on gossip. He never does it himself, but he always does speak truth. That didn't stop people, by the way, from gossiping about Jesus. They talked about him a lot. They slandered him a lot. In fact, at one point in Mark chapter 8, Jesus goes along with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way, he asks them about the gossip about himself. He says, what do people, or who do people say that I am? In other words... What's the scuttlebutt? What are they saying? Now some take that to mean that Jesus is really needing to know this gossip. And that's not the case. Jesus already knew what was being said. He's God. He understands these things. What he's doing is he's using the gossip people are spreading about him to teach the disciples the truth about who he was and who he is. No matter what people said, no matter what the lies were about him, Jesus reveals the truth. Actually, in this case, Peter says it out loud, but Jesus confirms it. The point stands. Jesus has no part of gossip. The Christian should have no part with gossip. We should only be interested, like our Savior, in the truth. If someone wrongs us, Jesus tells us, don't go around telling everyone to get them on your side. He says in Matthew 18, 15, now if your brother sins, go and show him his fault between you and him. And if he listens to you, you've won your brother. I like the way Rod Loy talks about this, by the way. And the reason I'm spending so much time on gossip isn't necessarily because it's a problem in our church, but it's a problem, period. Amen? Okay, everybody's awake. Good. All right. But this is how Rod Loy talks about it in his book, Help, I'm in Charge. He says, the number one mistake I see, and he's talking specifically about churches, I see in response to conflict is people share the story. 
They present their case over and over to involve other people. Rather than follow the biblical pattern, they seek to gain an audience by publicly airing out their grievance with someone else. If you ask them about this, they have good reason to talk to other people, but even good reasons aren't an excuse for ignoring scriptural commands. James tells us, don't slander one another, brothers. He who slanders a brother or or uh, he who slanders a brother or judges his brother slanders the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. Now, if you need to vent, I understand that. We all have bad days. We all have someone rub us the wrong way at times, right? So this is what you should do. Vent to somebody who is distant. Thank God for telephones and the internet, right? Don't air it out on Facebook, don't go home today, Pastor Jeff so made me so mad. No, don't, don't be a keyboard warrior. Go to a friend who is distant from the situation and vent to them. Say, this is what happened. This is my perspective. Am I wrong? Am I in the wrong? Am I right to feel this way? Don't go down the street. Don't go to... Someone else in the church, go to someone else who's distant and and neutral. And they might tell you, hey, yeah, you've been wronged. You've been hurt. You need to go and talk to that person. When you've calmed down, when you've taken a breath, go and talk and make this right. And they might even say to you, like I have, many of you have met my friend Jason Fisher. He's a pastor in Iowa. He does not know you people. Praise God. (laughs) Sometimes I call him up and I say, man, this guy, Dale, he's in my church and he will not stop saying amen while I'm preaching. It's kind of distracting. If you are listening to this, you know, none of that is true, except Dale is a part of their church. And he said, amen. (laughs) But I may call Jason and I'll say, you know, this, this is really rubbing me the wrong way. What do I do? And this is what my friend does. And this is what a good friend and a true friend and a Christian brother does for you. They say, Hey, when you've calmed down, call me again. Let's talk about it. And then you need to go and you need to talk to them. Or, this is my favorite, Jeff, you are throwing a hissy fit. You need to calm down and you need to let this go. Had someone recently very much hurt my feelings, hurt my heart. Someone who I considered myself close with betrayed me. And I went to another pastor who was distant from the situation. I said, man, this kind of got to me. I, I, I want to go sit down and, and straighten this guy out. And part of me wants to you know, really straighten this guy out. He said, you need to let it go. Jeff, you're making a mountain out of a molehill. You know, we need people who love us enough to tell us the hard truths and tell us, you know what, this might be gossip. I'm not going to have anything to do with it. I'm going to squash this where it is. But here's what we do. We don't, we don't really want that in our when we're hurt, when we're angry, when we're upset, when we're having our temper tantrum, when we're undermining the word of God and when we gossip. Many times what we do is we look for what we want to hear. But church, write this down in your notes. Save this. When you're angry, remember, don't go looking for what you want to hear. Go looking for what you need to heal. I'll say that again. Don't go looking for what you need to hear. Go looking for what you need to heal. But if you want to destroy God's people, if you want to ruin them, if you want to undermine God's design for handling conflict, then spread the poison of gossip and slander, and we will damage the body. Finally, step five, enjoy the fruit of victory. And I use victory in quotations. It's not really a victory. 
Verses 14 through 16 say, Then they sent word to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. Now it happened that when Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you, mo- give you for money, so, for Naboth is dead, or, uh, not alive, but dead. Wow, I'm just jumbling up words. Now it happened that when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. So this is what gets Ahab out of bed. The good news. He got what he wanted. And Jezebel's evil plans have succeeded. So she says, hey, if you're done with your hissy fit, if you're done being upset, I've taken over. I've undermined the law of God. I've spread enough poison to ruin his reputation. And I got what you didn't have the guts to get. Naboth refused to sell it, but I took care of him. Here's your trinket. Here's your little strip of land. Now you can have your vegetable garden in Jezreel. Weak men produce evil women. That's what we've seen. But Ahab doesn't care because Ahab has gotten what he wanted. He's got his vineyard. And soon he's going to have his own little vegetable garden. He doesn't have to send out for takeout anymore. He doesn't have to go down to Teal's. He can just walk out his back door, pick some jalapenos, some tomatoes, go back into his own kitchen. Boom, boom, he's got salsa. He's good to go, right? Way ahead of his time, that Ahab. Ahab has what Ahab wanted. It's right there for him to take it. Except it was still not Ahab's to take. If you remember, it would go to Naboth's next of kin. It should go to his son. It should go to his brother, his uncle, a cousin, somebody in his family. But it doesn't. It doesn't pass on in his family. That tells us one of two things has happened here. It tells us the extent of the slander. Naboth's reputation was so destroyed by what had happened, what had been said, that nobody cares what happens to his property or his family. Those who should have been willing to jump in and protect it and be good stewards of it are nowhere to be found. And second, everyone knew who was behind it. Everyone knew who caused this. There is no one who's bold enough to stand against Ahab and his wife. The prophets who may hear a word from the Lord, well, they're mostly dead. Surely they're not going to stand and say anything. There's nobody left. Who's bold enough and brave enough to confront the king who would dare call out this queen? Nobody. Nobody would. Absolutely nobody but God. Nobody but God will defend Naboth. We read on in verse 17 through 20. It says, Then the word of Yahweh came to Elijah the Tishbite. Uh Uh-oh. Right? He's got a bounty on his head. But the word's coming to the prophet. He says, God says, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who's in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth. He's he's enjoying the spoils of of his fit. He's gone down to take possession of it. You shall speak to him saying, thus says the Lord, have you murdered and also taken possession? You see who is ultimately responsible here? Have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him saying, thus says the Lord, in the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, the dogs will lick up your blood, even yours. And Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? And he answered, I found you because you sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. 
The real fruit of this supposed victory is the judgment, the wrath of God, shame, losing everything that matters, and pain for future generations. Was it worth it? That's what we have to ask ourselves. Was this really worth it for Ahab? You see, God has judged him for what he's done. God will punish Ahab. But here's the scariest part, because so many times we'll, we'll do these things, and then we'll just say, well, I'll just repent, and everybody's got to forgive me, right? And they will. People will forgive you. People show grace. God has unending grace. But there are consequences to our sins, even in this life. See, Ahab listens to, to Elijah's judgment. And even though scripture is going to repeat this in, in verse 25 of chapter 21, there was no one who sold himself to do what is evil in the sight of Yahweh like Ahab, whom Jezebel his wife incited. Even still, he repents. He hears Elijah's words this time, and this time it sinks in. This time it hits his heart. And it happened that when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and fasted, and he lay in sackcloth and went about despondently. As upset as he had been, now his heart is truly broken. He knows, I've gone too far. I've ruined a righteous man. I've ruined the people of God. I am really messing up here. And it sinks in. And God sees it. And he says to Elijah, Do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days, but I will bring the evil upon his house in his son's days. You see, we may repent. We may feel remorse for what we've done, with the fits we've thrown, the way we've led or refused to lead, or the undermining of God's word. We might feel bad about the gossip and the slander, but the fruits of the victory that it brings to us, all that we gain, the ripple effects go on for generations. Ahab's son, Joram, will die, and you know where they're going to toss his body? The field of Naboth. So we have to ask, well, then how does Christ compare to all of this? Jesus is the most confident, most secure person who ever walked the face of this earth. He was certainly not prideful. He laid down his life for the very people who would spit in his face, who would drive the nails through his hands. And if we want to destroy his people or ruin his church, we have to be like King Ahab and not like him. Not seek victory for the sake of the Lord, but seek our own pleasures, our own wants, our own desires, our own designs, and we'll see the fruit of that victory. But if we want to bring healing, we must choose to live like Christ and put others first and deal with conflict biblically. Have a higher view of Scripture and live according to it. Love our neighbor, not slander them. Bear one another's weaknesses for their own edification, if you remember last week's message. And in one accord, pursue Christ together. I'm going to move to close. If Georgette, if you want to come play. You see, we ruin the people of God when our priorities rise above what God has established. When we come into the sanctuary and, and it's all about me and it's all about my time, we forget that worship is all about him. We forget that he's the one to be glorified. The greatest sin of Jezebel and Ahab was their pride and their entitled mentality, believing themselves to be above the law of God and above the word of God. And if we did an altar call today, every last one of us should come forward because we've all done these things, myself included. 
In our own pride, if we sat in our seat and didn't come forward, we'd be admitting we were an Ahab or a Jezebel, right? Hardened by our own pride and by our own sin. So today what I'd ask you to do, and I don't do this very often, but with every head bowed, every eye closed, I'm not going to embarrass anyone or ask them to raise a hand or anything like that. Instead, I just want to ask you to pray. Holy Spirit, what have I done? Have I been this way? You know when I've been this way. Have I repented? Have I received your forgiveness? Lord, have I, have I not let it go? Do I still cling to the, what makes me angry? Do I still want to have my own way at the cost of I don't care what? Have I undermined your word for just a moment of comfort rather than conviction? I'd ask you just to continue in prayer and Georgette's going to begin singing in a moment and and when you're done praying, join and sing along and when we're done, we'll close in a word of prayer. But go ahead, just spend some time and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart. Ask the light of Christ to shine in those dark places that we try to hide even from ourselves, much less God. And in repentance, give it to him. Is Lord.